in 2018, we reached our family of three FI number. And so, and again, like we didn't really even notice it until after the fact, like I logged in a couple months later, it's like, oh wow, like, we're there, we're good, <laughs> you know? Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, but I could not be doing this thing by myself, so let's check in with the co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Well, I think you probably know what I'm up to. I'm trying to recover from the awesome Camp Fi trip that we just had down in Florida. We went down on Friday, came back yesterday on Monday, and had an awesome time with some of the uh, financial independence community. And you know we took advantage of those lounges in the airport, Justin. Priority pass for the win. (laughs) And we even had a little fun. You know, we did the duo presentation talking about all the things we've learned from having this show, from all the amazing guests, all the things we've taken away over these 75 plus episodes, which was just super cool to share in person with the community because it's super fun, you know, recording these audio waves and having people listen. But talking in front of a group of 50 has a lot different impact. You can see people's eyes. You can see their emotions, their expressions, how they're taking in the information. So I just had a ton of fun. And before we move any farther, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. One of the best ways to protect your family is with term life insurance. Even though we don't like to think about it, it's important to have financial protection in case the unexpected happens. Bestow is an awesome and reputable life insurance partner of ours that makes this process simple and easy. They use data to remove doctor visits and paperwork involved with the traditional life insurance process. And you can apply from anywhere in just minutes. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops to determine your eligibility. You'll receive an approval response right away. It literally took me less than one minute to get my estimated quote, and you can go do the same. Get your free and convenient quote by visiting thefyshow.com slash bestow. That's thefyshow.com slash bestow. B-E-S-T-O-W. Bestow. Life insurance made easy. So now let's jump into the episode, Cody, because I'm really excited for this guest. She's got a really awesome story, a really cool background. I mean, there's dual citizenship. You get to hear all these crazy things about Canada and her family, but I don't want to take her whole story away. Take it away, Court. Yeah, so it was pretty much in college slash while I was getting my master's. So while I was in school, I knew I was going to end up with quite a bit of student loan debt. I had about $65,000 to my name between undergrad and my master's. And just having that debt looming over me, I guess, just was so scary. You know, coming out, this was in 2008, when we all know kind of the economy at the time. And so I just wanted to get that paid off right away. I didn't know what I was doing from an investment standpoint. I just knew I had all this student loan debt that I needed to kill. So I made it a mission to kill off my student loan debt. And within a two and a half year time frame, it was gone. So it had accrued some interest and it ended up being about $70,000 when all was said and done, but it was done within two and a half years. And so right around that point is when I was looking to purchase a home. And that's when I also discovered Mr. Money Mustache blog. And so that's when the whole FI concept came into play as well. So I was always kind of a natural saver and naturally frugal beforehand. And then once I discovered that blog, I went down, you know, the rabbit hole of all the other blogs and, you know, just the natural progression, you know, but the goal was never really to retire early at the beginning. It was more, we've always been obsessed with traveling. So it was more to create like a well-balanced life. And it just so happened that we were saving a lot and ended up reaching our FI number 
very quickly within you know ten year time frame of starting our journey. And when you're looking at going to college and potentially accruing you know all this debt, did you know that going in that you were going to be getting yourself in a lot of debt? And if so, you know, was it based on a decision of going after a profitable degree that made you feel comfortable doing that? Yeah, I mean, to a sense, I knew I was going to be coming out with loans. So I played hockey throughout my life, essentially. And my goal was to play college hockey, ice hockey. And so that was my number one mission. And so I ended up getting a scholarship, but it was a partial scholarship. It was for 50% of tuition, which I went to a private liberal arts school in upstate New York. And that still meant $20,000 a year, even with the scholarship in place. So how my parents and I worked it out is that they were willing to pay for half of it and I was going to pay for the other half. So I knew going into it that I was going to have $40,000 in student loan debt for my undergrad. And then it ended up accruing more over time, plus my master's. I did a term abroad. You know, so I knew that I was accruing this debt. It didn't really hit me the number. You know, it didn't sound as bad as it was beforehand until bam, you know, welcome to the real world. You know, I had done, (laughs) you know, I had done, you know, little oddball jobs all throughout high school and college and everything. And I was always saving that money. So I had a little bit of a nest egg to my name, but like nothing major, not able to pay off, you know, the student loan debt right away. So I had always known it was there and had always had little jobs to help in a sense. I was never that person that was, you know, going out and buying beer for everyone or, you know, going out to restaurants when I had a meal plan, you know, I was mindful of my spending in college, but I didn't realize, you know, how large this debt was going to be when all was said and done. And so what did you study? I don't know if we talked about that at all yet. So I ended up majoring in economics and math. So I went in thinking I was going to be a mechanical engineer. I was that for a day and then I switched to my major. <laughs> no, no real reason. I just like wasn't feeling it, which is so ridiculous. And then I switched to my freshman year. I was taking all different science classes. And my sophomore year, where the school I went to was on uh, trimesters. So my first trimester of my sophomore year, I was in organic chemistry. And the professor there said, I hope everyone saw my email about reading chapters one through nine on your own. And we'll start on chapter 10. Well, I never got that email and I was not about to start organic chemistry nine chapters behind. So I dropped it thinking, I'll just take it next, you know, next term. And I took an intro to economics class instead. And that's when I was like, oh, I get this stuff. Like, this is like my calling, you know, and math has always come easy to me. So I ended up doing a dual econ and math major. And then for my master's, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like, it doesn't really give you a career path like nursing, say, does. You know, you know, you're going to be a nurse after nursing school. With a math and econ degree, you can still kind of do a lot of different things that I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I delayed it by going to get my master's. And I did an international business because I had done a term abroad in my undergrad to Italy. And I loved it so much that I'm like, I just want to travel. I thought I was going to end up in the travel and tourism industry. And for this master's, it was focused on international business. And I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. And afterwards, I was at a couple different job fairs and career fairs and information sessions that different companies were coming to our school about. 
And I liked the idea of these companies that were offering these business rotation programs. The companies I was looking at, they were all over. One was an energy company, which I ended up working for. Another one was like Texas Instruments. Another one was Geico Insurance. You know, they were all over the place. I still didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I liked the idea that this rotation program gave me more time to try and figure that out where I would rotate, whether it was two, three or four different departments within the company to try and feel out, you know, this department versus this department, what do they do? You know, you don't really know that in school. So this gave me, you know, opportunity to get paid while testing out different jobs. So I ended up in the energy industry with no energy background at all. And so this rotational program, I've actually never really heard of a job that offered that. Does that allow you to, so you're going across different segments of the same company, and then you decide which one you would rather work in within that company? Yeah, exactly. So the one I was in, it was a bit structured where I knew which department. For me, it was three six-month rotations. So it was an 18-month rotation program within three different departments within the same company. And essentially at the end of each six-month rotation, your boss for that six-month time would kind of write up a review and put in their recommendation if they thought you would be a good fit on that floor or not. And then at the end of the full 18 months, I basically was able to rank which ones I preferred versus which ones I didn't. And as long as there was an opening at the time with my top preference, I would end up on that floor. What I would be doing on that floor was for, you know, where the openings are. So where I ended up was not something that I rotated in per se, like as job wise, but it was on a floor that I had rotated through. Okay. So I like that we're kind of building this backstory. You knew that, you know, you needed to make that money. You were already $70,000 in debt at this point. You had this job locked in, but correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think you were alone at this point in your journey. Could you talk about when you met your wife, how that whole thing went down and whether or not she was on board with this whole, you know, pay down our student loan debt and start saving after that? Yeah, sure. So I started my first job in 2000, beginning of 2009. That's when I finished my master's. And my I met my now wife in the end of 2011. So it'd been a couple years. At that point, I had finished paying off my student loan debt. And she was actually going back to school for a second bachelor's degree at that point. So she ended up getting pretty much a full ride for her undergrad degree for hockey as well. We didn't know each other. We played in the same league, but didn't know it at the time. We met through a mutual friend after I had graduated, and she then went back to school for nursing. So something much more you know, generic, you understand what nursing is. But she ended up getting student loan debt from going back to school. She had to take prerequisites and then the nursing program. So she ended up with $40,000 in student loan debt to her name. So around that time, it was when we met when she was taking her prerequisites. And so she was accumulating debt at that point, you know, and was looking for a program that would basically get her her degree the fastest and at the cheapest rate, but obviously keeping in mind, you know, the school she's going to. So she ended up going to school down in Florida, where I was at that time. It was a one-year accelerated program. So that ended up being, you know, the most cost-effective way that she can get into the workplace, you know, sooner rather than later type of thing. And so she was very debt-averse as well. Like when she was in school, she was living in, I I can't even call it a studio apartment. Like it was a room. (laughs) It was a box. (laughs) It had a little closet, a little tiny, I can't even call it kitchen, you know, a little bathroom, but it's all one room essentially. And that was like 
on her willing, you know, she chose to do that. That was nothing to do with me or anything. So she was already, you know, aware of her financial situation as well. And so for her, with her student loans, she also killed hers off in two and a half years once she finished school. We had never really talked about finances at that point. You know, for us, both of our passions were hockey and traveling. So we optimized that, you know, like we got into travel hacking and we would travel all around the world for super cheap. And in our free time in between, we were planning trips. And so that's kind of what we did together. We would go hiking, we would go to free concerts, we would volunteer to get into things for free. Like it was just kind of natural that we both enjoyed doing those type of things. So it wasn't like I had to convince her. I'm definitely the more money-related, number-related, math-related side of our relationship, but she just kind of goes with the flow. You know, I say, oh, here's the latest game plan, and she's down, you know, to hear whatever it is type of thing. So I know you said that y'all weren't really even talking about money, but you just both happened to pay off these large sums of debt and around the same amount of time, like two and a half years. But at what point in your relationship did something happen where you looked at each other and be like, man, we're pretty good at this and we could really like accelerate this and maybe live a lifestyle that no one else is doing? Yeah, good question. So again, for us, it was all travel related. So we were living in Florida in 2015. Well, up until 2015, I should say. And over the course of the years leading up to 2015, that's when we really started talking about, you know, what do we want to be doing together? That's, we ended up getting married in 2015. Like, what are our life goals type of thing? And my wife is originally from Canada. She is not a fan of the heat, humidity, people, hurricanes, rain, you name it, <laughs> in Florida. <laughs> and so I, you know, I grew up there my whole life. I went to school up north, but I came back. For me, it was fine, but she wasn't a big fan of it. So our ultimate goal was to move up to Canada. But in between, we wanted to travel. So we were planning to travel around the world for a year. So for Years leading up to 2015, we were talking about this along with the wedding and wedding planning stuff. And that was basically our conversations is, you know, where do we want to go? How much money do we have to have saved? How can we do this on a a budget? You know, but we want to go and do all these things. Let's save up all of our travel points to go do this. You know, that was kind of our conversations and money was involved in all of that. Right. So we sold literally everything that we owned, except for I think we brought three bags each up with us to Canada, but like furniture, you know, everything was gone artwork. And that I think really helps, you know, just the whole minimalism side of things, like understanding, like these things aren't bringing us any value. But anyways, we sold all of our stuff. We quit our jobs with nothing lined up, not knowing, you know, the next step other than to go travel. So we ended up traveling for about six months. And part of those travels was up in Canada to visit some of her friends and family and who lived in the Calgary area. And that's where we wanted to end up down the road. And they all were telling me, knowing I I was in the energy industry, like, good luck finding a job up here. It's the hub. Calgary is the energy hub for Canada, but oil prices just tanked. Not that I work in the oil and gas industry, but it's all kind of related. And prices just tanked. People were getting fired or going on hiring freezes. And so that's when I started looking. I'm like, I thought, you know, this would be kind of an easy, I'd find something, you know, and I started looking and sure enough, there was nothing really posting. And so I finally saw a job that fit what I was doing. I applied. It was super hard. They had me hand write out Excel formulas, which doesn't really have to do with what I'm doing, (laughs) you know, but they could be like super selective. 
So I left that thinking, yeah, I didn't get that job. We're going to go to Japan. We're going to go from there. We're going to go to Thailand. You know, we had already done a lot of the U.S. and Canada and Europe at that point. And then the next plan was to spend six months in Southeast Asia area. And so I left that interview thinking I didn't get that job, but I ended up getting that job. They had two openings and I was one of the two that they wanted. So that kind of halted our travel plans. But to go back to your original question, that trip and planning for that trip is what got us really talking about the money side of things. So again, it wasn't really about retiring early. It was about how can we feel comfortable quitting our jobs with nothing lined up? Like how much money do we want to have saved? Where do we want to go? How much do we want to spend? Those were the money talks we were having. And then once we moved up to Canada and we didn't do the full year of travel and we saw, you know, the stock markets have continued to grow and our savings rate has been, you know, 60 plus percent, 60 to 80 percent, give or take, depending on the year. You know, it's just propelled us to reach this FI number in 10 years, which was nowhere near what we thought we would be doing. It just kind of happened naturally, I guess. So you had absolutely no idea that this whole financial independence thing was a thing and you guys were just still mindlessly basically saving 60 plus percent of your income? I knew about financial independence. So I discovered Mr. Money Mustache in 2012. I started reading it. Okay, 2012 was that year. Okay, okay. 2012 was Mr. Money Mustache and then Mad Scientist, J.L. Collins, you know, you name it. So I was reading all about it. But we were prior to that, we were throwing money at something, whether it was our student loans or saving up for a down payment. We were house hacking before we even knew what house hacking was. You know, we were doing these things because it just made sense to us. Like we were travel hacking before we ever read a blog about travel hacking or my coworker told me about it. You know, so it wasn't that I found the FI community and then started doing all these things. It was all kind of in tandem, I guess, you know, rather than spend money that we, cause I, I was making a decent in- income starting out of school. I could have easily just paid my minimums on my student loans and spent the rest. That to me didn't make any sense. So it was like, okay, let's throw money at our loans. Let's throw, get debt free. Let's throw money at a mortgage. Let's pay that off in two and a half years. If we can, why wouldn't we, if we can have a 30 year mortgage versus a two and a half year mortgage, like why wouldn't we have roommates and pay off our mortgage in two and a half years? It just made like sense to me, you know, and then that's around when I discovered the Mr. Money Mustache blog. So we were doing all these things. And then the FI concept came into play. And I was like, Ooh, I found my people, I found my community, (laughs) you know, other people who get it, right. So it's not like I had this aha moment. Once I learned about Mr. Money Mustache, it was more like, okay, now how can I optimize? Like I really learned a lot about the investing side and how easy invest or simple, I should say, investing can be, you know, I was intimidated by it. I was contributing a little bit towards my 401k about like maybe 10%, but the rest was going towards my student loans because I didn't know what to do with investing. You know, so from that angle, if I, you know, all the bloggers out there have really, really helped, like just get us up to speed on investing and what to do and keeping it simple, low fee index funds, you know, we follow that strategy. And so that definitely had to do, you know, with the FI community for sure, a hundred percent. So we were, I think we were mentally there, but it was more, you know, how can we strategize what we're doing? You know, how can we become better at this? How can we learn more through others who are doing it too? Okay. Now all the pieces are coming together. (laughs) (laughs) So I know you said when y'all first started talking about this, it was mostly centered around travel. Did it ever change from that to actually start thinking about 
these are some bigger goals that we have, whether it be these are milestones where we want to be retired by this age or whether it be family, whatever it is. Did it ever go from just travel to something bigger? Yeah. So we've always been into travel. Like it's still a big part of our life. But in 2016, maybe we started talking about becoming a family and trying to have a child. And we knew, you know, being a lesbian couple, like it's not as easy, right? Like there's different hurdles we have to take, right? So it took planning, right? We thought it would take a lot longer, just the whole process of meeting with one doctor and then getting referred to the fertility clinic and then the trials and how many times is this going to take? And it ended up being a lot faster than we thought. So we ended up becoming a family and we welcomed our daughter into the world in April of 2018. So during that timeframe of 2016 to, you know, talking about it to actually trying in 2017 and then having the pregnancy be successful on our first try, which we were not expecting at all to having, you know, our daughter, that's when I really looked at the numbers and I was like, you know, how can we make this work that now that we're going to be a family, like, you know, family is for us, you know, super important. How can we spend time together as a family? So even when our daughter was born, we thought my wife was going to end up going back to work. So we're now in Canada and in Canada, they have either 12 or 18 months of parental leave which I know is kind of crazy. (laughs) 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 So we ended up doing the 18 month parental leave and about halfway through I was tracking all, and I I don't obsess about our numbers. You know, I check our net worth maybe two times a year at that point. And so it wasn't like something I'm like constantly obsessing about. I just knew, you know, if the market's going up, we're in good shape. And if there's a dip, that's when we should be buying more. You know, like that was always my philosophy, like throughout these years. But then once our daughter was born, it's like, okay, now, like, how can we be a family unit together more? And that's when I really looked into the numbers. And that's when I started my Instagram to connect with more people. Cause I'm like, wow, we're really, really, really close. And it didn't really hit me up until probably 2017, 2018, that I realized like, wow, like we are really, really close. So then I started running some numbers. I'm like, okay, Nick, I don't think you need to go back to work. She was working, only working part-time. And it wasn't like, you know, between childcare costs and, you know, the extra daycare costs and the hustle and bustle of like, just feeling so stressed and chaotic of having two people working versus only one just made sense to us to be like, okay, you be a stay-at-home mom, you retire at this point. We're all going to be happier because of that. So we reduced our income. My wife stopped working. And then last year in 2019, well, to backtrack, in 2018, we reached our family of three FI number. And so, and again, like we didn't really even notice it until after the fact, like I logged in a couple months later. It's like, oh, wow, like, we're there. We're good. <laughs> you know, like I think like not obsessing has really helped. Like I think about money, but I don't think about it. Like, where are we? How are we going to get there? You know, it's just more like, how can we save money? How can we spend, put more into our investments? And I think we've gotten to a point over the years where we've just like figured out the things we value. And so it leaves us with this quite large savings rate and we just funnel it all to investments and we don't have to think about it. It's not like we budget or anything like that. So then fast forward to 2019 and I ended up shifting to a part-time position. Cause again, like we reached our 
FI number for our family of three. I'm like, I don't need to be working full time. Like, let's enjoy the journey while our daughter's still young. We're hopeful to become a family of four. And I thought 2023 would be when we would get to our family of four number. If you asked me that a year ago. Wow. (laughs) And now we're there. Like, we are there already. We hit that point in the end of 2019. So it's like, you know, you can obsess about numbers, you could think about them and you can run these numbers, but like a lot of it is out of your control. Don't get me wrong. Like your savings rate is totally in your control, like boost up that savings rate. Right. But you don't know what the market's going to do. Like I I'm so fiscally conservative that I use like the last year I've used like 3% as my estimate growth of what my portfolio is going to do. And we all saw what the market did. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot predict it, right? So not that we're 100. Now at this point, we are nowhere near. We're closer to like only 60% in stock since we're so close to our point where I'm actually going to quit working. And we want to be pretty conservative with, you know, sequence of returns risk and everything. But the point is like, you can obsess about numbers, but like it's a lot of it is out of your control. You know, you you have to do what you can on the things that you can control and then just let the market do its thing. And there's going to be a dip like it's going to happen. You know, it's just a matter of when and most of year and just realize it's going to bounce back. So I definitely want to get into the sequence of return risk and your withdrawal strategy because it sounds like you are planning on withdrawing from that portfolio. But just a quick aside before I forget to ask this, I know you have dual U.S. Canadian citizenship. Is that just because you married a Canadian or can any U.S. person go get a Canadian citizenship? Because it sounds like Canada just has so many sweet perks like the <laughs> 18 months leave and awesome health care and a lot of other benefits. Honestly, now that I'm up here, I say Canada is an early retiree's dream. Like I'll go through even more. Like that's just the tip of the iceberg is the parental leave and, you know, the healthcare. But to answer your question, my dad was born in Canada. Oh. So that's how I have it. Oh, he so you cheated. <laughs> <laughs> I never lived there. He was actually only there for two weeks and then he was adopted to an American family. But his birth certificate says, you know, says that he's born in Canada. And that's the only, you know, document that he has. And so it was quite challenging for me to get my citizenship. I could have gotten it through Nick, like through our marriage. So answer A is yes, you can get it through marriage. Uh, I could have gotten it that way. But I was able to get it faster through my dad, essentially, basically, your first generation offspring is able to claim citizenship. So that's the route that I took. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I was just really curious because like there's so many sweet perks of being a Canadian that minus the credit cards, actually, Canada has terrible cards for travel hacking. (laughs) But luckily, I'm still able to get US cards. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I didn't think I would. I didn't think I would. But yes, I totally agree. That is definitely the downside. Some things are more expensive here, but it is honestly like an early retiree's dream. Like, do you want me to go into the details? Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Sell us on Canada. Okay. So on top of the parental leave, it's 18 months. You can split it up however you want. The birth parent has to take a certain amount of weeks, but otherwise you can split it up. It's paid. You don't get your full pay. So you get about, you net about $25,000 after tax. So you, you are still getting paid. You know, it's just likely not your full salary, depending on what your salary is. So you get that. Then healthcare, I mean, it's it's incredible. So I was in a major car accident. My car was completely totaled. I ended up in urgent care all day. They went through x-rays, you know, all these scans, checked for internal bleeding. I ended up just with a broken elbow, luckily. But like I left there with, actually, I was going to say no bill, but 
the sling that they put me in for my elbow wasn't covered through Alberta Health. And so <laughs> I had $17, $17 bill. <laughs> so that was one. Then the birth of our child, right? Like in the States, you typically have some sort of costs going through labor and delivery, like $0. Like we left with, we had to pay for parking at the hospital. So I think it was, you know, $20 maybe for parking. That was like our major health experience, number two. And then number three was my wife. In between, while I was leaving my full-time job and switching over to this part-time job, my wife ended up getting meningitis. And so this is when we neither one of us were working, neither one of us had you know, additional health care through our employer. And she ended up in the hospital for five days. I ended up extending my start time because that's kind of the power of FI. I just said, you know, I need to be here for my family. I don't need this income. But we were, in, she was in the hospital overnight, five days, you know, doing all sorts of work, right? And again, all we left there with was parking. So I think it was $40, you know, with the visits. That was it, you know? So like these, all these major, major complications that could arise, like we've gone through three pretty big ones and nothing, you know, parking, like so <laughs> meaningful, you know? Okay. So that's, that's the healthcare. And then I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's good. It's very good. <laughs> the other thing that's great here is we get for our children, we get what's called the Canada child benefit. So again, it depends on your income, but because we're planning, well, now I'm part-time and when I leave, we're going to be getting the max amount. Essentially you get weighted average, you get more from when the child's zero to six, and then it's a little less from six to 17. But basically the weighted average is a little more than $5,000 per child per year. That's a tax-free money that we're getting from the government. So if we have two kids, we're looking about $10,000 additional income from when they're zero to 17, which is essentially, (laughs) yeah, yeah, which is essentially covering most of their estimated child-related costs. Like we figured out that kids don't have to be expensive. They can be, but they don't have to. That's another one. Then, you know, in the U.S., you have a 529 for the child's education, right? Mm -hmm. In Canada, it's called the RESP, Registered Education Savings Plan. The government will match up to 20% of your contributions up to $500 a year. So meaning if you put in $2,500, the government's going to throw in $500 every year that you do that. So we're doing that, like we're putting in the $2,500 per child and we have that estimated, you know, in our FI numbers to continue doing that to get the $500 from the government every year. Last thing I'll mention is as you get older, you know, in the States, you have social security. In Canada, it's called CPP, Canada Pension Plan. Think of it as the same thing. You know, it's based off your contributions over your working year, right? And what you get back from it is based off of what you get pay into it, right? So that's very similar, but we also have two other things called OAS, old age security, and GIS, guaranteed income supplement. And those are essentially income-based, not net worth-based, income-based of how much money are you having as your income over the course of, you know, 65 to, you know, however long you qualify for it. So we're going through our withdrawal strategy now. And it's like, we can live off of OAS and GIS which are tax-free, oh, sorry, it's not tax-free, which, are, which is income from the government. And we can withdraw from our you know, savings accounts. Our TFSA is similar as a Roth IRA up down in the States. And that income can provide for us for an eight-year time frame where we won't really have to tap into the rest of our accounts. So we've got like this eight-year 
beautiful setup for once we turn 65, where like our accounts can still grow, you know, we may withdraw a fraction of what we would have without those, you know, so those now that I've, and I'm constantly learning these things, right? Like I'm not from here. I'm just learning all this stuff. And now that I'm learning all these things, I'm like, oh my gosh, Canada's seriously like an early retiree stream. <laughs> so I'm sure somebody's like listening to that, thinking about how awesome all these things are, especially the healthcare. But if they're from America, they're probably, you know, nervous about, well, what is that doing to the taxes that are taken out of your paycheck? Is it like markedly different or is it actually not that bad? It's really not that bad. So I thought the same thing going up before leaving the U.S. and coming up to Canada. That was my thought. Right. It's like you hear about the healthcare in Canada, but then you hear about the taxes and you're like, well, if you're making all this money, but it's getting clawed away in taxes, like, is there a break even? You know, like, are you really gaining money? And there's marginal tax rates here, just like there are in the U.S., and they're actually really similar. It's a bit higher, like we pay a couple percentage more in our taxes, but not like double. You know what I mean? Like it's not that noticeable where it's like, oh, I can't save any money now because everything's getting clawed back from our taxes. Wow, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I always thought like Canadians paid like 50% in taxes or something crazy like that. (laughs) I thought the same thing. Yeah, I think... (laughs) I think I'm in the low 20s, but because I get a supplemental insurance through my employer, I basically get these, I guess you can think of it as like flex credits for health spending, but because everything's basically covered here, like it's just extra income for us. So actually put, because of this extra income I'm getting from the health side of things, I'm in like the 18% tax rate. Wow. (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Justin and I are definitely numbers nerds, and I know you mentioned earlier, clearly you're also a numbers nerd court, and you talked about how right now you're about 60% stocks. I'm assuming the other 40% was bonds, although you didn't say it. Could you talk about your withdrawal strategy and how you are mitigating sequence of returns risk? Sure, yeah. So I'm about 60% stocks, and then it's split the rest between bonds and cash. So the majority of the cash is sitting in a high interest savings account. In Canada, it's another perk, I guess, we have a 2.8% high interest savings account, which I don't think there's quite that high in the the States right now. So we have a majority of it in there. So our plan for the next bit is I'm planning to work part-time, even though we've reached our FI number here, until hopeful baby number two is born. So that will help increase our overall net worth and our passive income for another year or two until baby two is born. And then I am going to take parental leave for 18 months. So that will be our initial hedge. So we live on about $25,000 a year right now. And so that parental leave money will cover us for our first year. So we won't have to tap into anything for year number one. Then the plan is to start withdrawing from the cash, whether it's you know our checkings account or this high interest savings account, we're going to withdraw from that first. And that should last for a couple more years. And so at that point, if there is any sort of dip, it should have hopefully resolved itself, but we're still not going to be tapping into our stocks at that point. We're working on a glide path as well to get back to closer to anywhere from 80 to 100% stocks over the long run, still working on that. So we're not planning to stay at 60% stocks the whole time. But then I'm going to start withdrawing from our taxable accounts. So we have some in the US, some in Canada, working on both of those. In Canada, we have what's called the RRSP, which is similar to a 401k. But the nice part is you can withdraw at any point. You pay taxes on it because it's, you know, it's, it's deferred taxes. So you will still pay taxes, but you can withdraw at any point. There's not the 59 and a half, you know, time frame, you know, limit 
where you'll get hit with an extra penalty. So we can start withdrawing from that as well. And so those taxable accounts comboed with the RRSP, we might not even have to touch the RRSP, but those taxable accounts should last us until typical retirement age. And that's when we're going to do this OAS, GIS, potential additional withdrawals from different accounts until we're from like 65 to 71. And then after that point, that's when we'll tap into, well, I have a pension through my old employer as well. So I have that some sort of CPP or social security. There's a treaty. I'm still trying to figure all that. I essentially will qualify for it. It's all so confusing, <laughs> you know, but I will have something there. I don't include our pension or social security or CPP in my FI numbers because it's an unknown, this, the pension's there, but I still just like to use that as kind of a hedge. I have a health savings account that I don't include in our numbers either. So all of these are kind of like emergency fund numbers, like back of the envelope type of, I know it's there, but I don't use it to include. So that helps with any sort of risk down the road. Same thing. My wife has about $25,000 to her name. That's, you know, in an investment account and we don't include that in our numbers as well. So we have different things in place to hedge it, but two things that are really helping us is that about 70% of our investments are in us dollars, but we're now in Canada and the exchange rate has been sitting around 1.3 ish give or take. So if we were to convert all of that 70% that's in US dollars over to Canadian dollars, that essentially brings us from a 4% withdrawal rate down to a 3% withdrawal rate. So that's like a huge impact for us. And then the other thing, like I mentioned before, the the Canada child benefit, that's essentially $10,000 that we're going to be getting for the next 17 years. And we don't include that either. So if we only have to withdraw say our FI number is going to be 35,000, even though we're spending 25 now, we're projecting some future expenses, additional babies, supplemental insurance, things like that. But if we're only having to withdraw 25 instead of 35 because of this child benefit, then that reduces our safe withdrawal rate by another percentage. So we're essentially sitting closer to a 2% withdrawal rate rather than four, even though we use the four for like the calculations, you know, 25 times your number, but we're only having to withdraw closer to 2%. And then lastly, on top of all that, sorry, as if that wasn't enough, we're both totally aware, you know, that if there's a huge drop as soon as we both, well, as soon as I quit my job, that we can go and be baristas or go work at, you know, our local coffee shop or mow the lawn or, you know, whatever, do something where we can bring in $25,000 a year. If that's going to be our expenses that we need to cover between, you know, the 35 minus the child benefit. So we know we can bring in $25,000, you know, let the retirement police ring, you know, like have them attack <laughs> us, you know, but like we're totally aware that we can easily still bring in $25,000 between the two of us and live a very, very happy life with a lot of downtime. You know, that's, that's totally realistic. And we're aware of that. And when we'll likely will do something once our kids are in school, like we'll likely do something a couple hours a week, you know, some part-time thing, just because I think people in the FI community are very motivated. Like you guys started this podcast, you know, like it's just natural to do things. Right. So whatever that may be, whether it brings in money or not, like we're going to do something. I was literally just about to ask that. I was like, there's no way you guys are just (laughs) sitting on your butts after you take your leave and you don't have a job. Cause like, I had never really been close to anyone who had just gone through like the process of becoming a mother until Julie, actually who you're on her podcast fire drill. And I work pretty closely with her on the online courses. And 
she was just like itching to start doing stuff because she yeah. was like, you know what? Like I've been doing this mom thing for a couple of months. I just want to get back and like do stuff and work. And yeah. I can imagine it's going to be a similar situation for you guys. Yeah. I mean, being a parent is hard. It's really, really hard. It's really taxing. It's 24 seven. Like it's not a nine to five job. You can't just afterwards after five o'clock, like go sit on the couch. You can't do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally all day and all night. So it's exhausting. Don't get me wrong. It's totally exhausting, especially more so for my wife. Like she's more with my child, you know, all the time with our child all the time. I'm there a lot, but you know, she's definitely goes through the brunt of all that, but she's already, you know, itching to do something like she doesn't know what, but she's done some research to try and look and figure out like, what do I want to do? So it's, it's just a matter of time, you know, that we do something, what it is, I have no clue, you know, when it's going to be, I have no clue, but our plan, at least for now, it might change in a year is for her to not work from now until our second kid, hopeful second kid is start school. And then for me to work until second baby is born and then be off until second baby is in school. And then after that point, you know, so that's maybe, you know, five, six years down the road, then I likely will be some doing something full on part time. And in between now and then, who knows, like, I just, I actually just started coaching people. So it's just a matter of, doing things that you enjoy, you know, like, I will find time to do things. I do have time to do things. And it's much more FI related things. And I think that's the purpose of all this. And the point of all this, right, is like, you're building a life around freedom and choices to do what you want to do with the time that you have, you know, whether it means spending all day long with our kid, or if it means, you know, working two hours a week, like, so be it, you know, whatever it is, (laughs) you know. So one thing we always try to do is pull out some unique, tangible tips from the person that we got brought on based on your unique experience. And you seem to know a lot about, obviously, you're starting to learn so much about the Canada stuff, but you also know a lot about how the American systems work growing up there. Do you have any landmines that you could maybe help people avoid who are in a lesbian relationship looking to have a child? I can imagine there might be some like medical expenses that you got to be really careful for that if they're especially if they're in the United States where maybe the healthcare system isn't as favorable as the Canadian system. Yeah, I mean, so for us, we decided we were going to go with IUI, which is the cheaper less invasive route, I guess you can say. The easiest way to think of it is like, quote unquote, turkey baster. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So with that route, it's significantly cheaper. So to do that, you need the donor sperm. That was actually a lot. That was the hardest process is deciding on the donor sperm. We thought it would be deciding hair color, eye color, and height range. That's what we thought. And like, we would get, you know, pick out of the litter type of thing. And it initially started with that. But these applications were all like, over 20 pages long. So we had a lot of reading to do. I mean, they went into so much detail of like, you know, religion and interests and hobbies and levels of education and not only their medical records, but any siblings they have, their parents, their grandparents, aunts, uncles, down from like glasses to acne, like all this stuff, which now that we have it, you know, I'm so glad that we have it. But at the time I was just like, I picked five and I told Nick, I'm like, I'm good with any of these five. You know, you just pick one at that point. They had to write a one page letter explaining why they wanted to be a donor. It was just like a lot more than we thought we were going to get. So that part was the most overwhelming part to be totally honest. But once we had the donor selected, my number one advice would be if you are even thinking about having more than one kid, 
buy a lot of that donor sample. So we learned the hard way. We bought three vials of that donor sample. It ended up working on the first try. And now we have two left to try for baby two. So that way, hopefully the DNA is 100% the same. But that donor is no longer available. So if it doesn't work on these next two attempts, we'll have to buy new donor sperm and that will end up being, you know, different DNA makeup, you know, so they'll be not a hundred percent genetically the same. Now that may like to us, it's not that big of a deal, you know, it might be a, a bigger deal to other people. So that would be one thing that like we learned after the fact. But the other thing I would say is to make up a game plan. You know, we said we were going to try IUI six times and thinking it was going to take six times. And then after that, we were going to take a break for a couple months and reassess and decide, do we want to go IVF, which is a lot more expensive, you know, a lot harder. It's emotional, right? Like it's a whole emotional process to go through all this. So I would definitely say, you know, make up a game plan of what you're willing to do, what you're willing to spend, how long you're willing to go on this process. Because, you know, we got super lucky, but it typically takes a year or more of trying. So, you know, know that going into it and, you know, be aware. I think something that might have helped us is we went into it thinking, all right, this is try one of six, you know, let's get this one over with because we're going to have six, you know, five more. So I think like having that kind of like, blase, but you know what I mean? Like calmer attitude about it versus being super anxious. I think that might've helped. So that would be, I guess, another piece of advice is like, go into it as relaxed as possible. Sorry. You no, no, that was good. I, le- I just learned so many things about things I didn't know about. <laughs> I just listened to a uh, Planet Money podcast about the whole like sperm donor, I don't know, economy and how it started. And apparently Certain countries, like including America, have some of the more like they'll give you a lot more detail. In some countries, they're not allowed to ask like any of that kind of stuff. So it's actually a, a big export of America. So. Yes. And the sperm that we ended up getting was actually American sperm. So in, in Canada, there's one extra stipulation to be able to get donor sperm up here is after six months, you have the donor has to go back and get retested for blood work to make sure no diseases or you know anything has popped up over those six months. And some of the sperm banks in the U.S. do that extra step. Some don't. So we were able to use some of the access, some of the U.S. sperm banks as well. And that's one of the, it just so happened, the one we selected was from the U.S. So yeah, the U.S. goes through a a lot of rules and regulations and it's, it's a huge ordeal. All right. So Court, I have learned a lot of things in this (laughs) podcast from giving birth and getting the IUI (laughs) to Canadian taxes and withdrawal strategies, ton of awesome stuff. And I know you guys have an awesome, amazing story. And if people want to connect with you, learn a little bit more about your story, where's the best place for them to reach out to you? So there's two ways to get a hold of us. We have a blog. It's uh, modernfamily.com. So it's a spin on the TV show, Modern Family, but we've got the FI in there since we've reached FI. So modernfamily.com. Or we're pretty active on Instagram and we're at Modern Family. Awesome. And then Court, we always like to ask our guests, what is one tangible tip that you would have for people who are out there also on this path to financial independence? So the one thing I think that's the most important is to track your expenses to the penny. So when I started out in 2009 with that first job, I created a super simple Excel spreadsheet. It's what I use to this day. I don't use Mint or You Need a Budget or Personal Capital. And they're all great. I'm not you know, disrespecting them in any way. But I just use a simple Excel spreadsheet that has you know, the date, what the expense was, and how much it cost. 
and then another column area for income, the date, what it was, where I got paid and how much the payment was for. And then I just have one cell that's summing up all the income and subtracting all the expenses to giving me my net, you know, for the month. And each tab is a different month. And that's what I use to this day. So I think just being aware of what your expenses are and having to go in and type that in. And you might realize, you know, you might do it weekly or bi-weekly or monthly or whatever it is, but you might, as you're putting something in, you might be like, oh, I bought that. I'm not even using that anymore, you know? And you can really conceptualize like the things you value. And so that would be like, for sure, the number one thing. And then to that point is figure out what you value. We're all living in this crazy consumption society where it's just buy, 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 more, 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 you know, advertising, marketing, like, you may not actually really want that thing, like the latest iPhone, you know, it's just because there's advertisements for it, you know, 24 seven, and all your friends are getting it. Do you really need it? So taking that step back and asking that question, like, do I need it? What do I value and spending your money on what you value and then cutting out the fluff? All right. I love that answer. And so, Court, we are getting on to the most important part of the podcast, which is the wildcard oh. question where I'm not ready. Justin's not ready. You're not ready. You probably were like, oh, they're not. They're going to give me this beforehand. This isn't really <laughs> wild, but it really is wild. We don't premeditate this whatsoever. Do you think you're ready for this? I can only hope. All right. <laughs> so you and your wife both played college hockey. That's correct, right? Yes, correct. All right. So I want to hear the craziest hockey story. You know, I'm talking about a brawl. I'm talking about a ref getting knocked out with a high stick. I just want to hear the craziest thing that happened on the ice. Okay. The first thing that comes to mind is I was in high school is before even college. We were on the team I was on. We went to a tour through the Scandinavian countries. So we were in Denmark, Norway and Sweden playing against different teams there. And there was a couple seconds left in the game. And I ended up along the boards going up against, you know, someone on the opposing team. And her stick got stuck in my hip pads. And she kept going one way. I was going the other. And I ended up doing, you know, this crazy flip. Landed on my elbow, my head. I ended up having to go to the hospital and I went to the hospital on our team bus. So I was still fully equipped in my hockey equipment. The bus driver drove me to and my coach to the hospital in Oslo, Norway. And I obviously am kind of out of it. I had a concussion and I was there overnight. And again, like talking about like different countries, zero hospital bill overnight for a concussion. But that led to, I ended up getting four different concussions through hockey. So that was the first one. And then I ended up getting three more in school. So now my memory shot, totally shot. (laughs) (laughs) I blame hockey completely for all my concussions. But I think that's the, the craziest that comes to my mind. There wasn't like, girls are like, they're, they're rude. Like they're mean. Like they are, they're mean, but like not so much like, you know, drop your gloves, punching, but like, there's definitely a lot of, you think like girls hockey and you think it's not very physical, but it is a very physical game. Well, I was not expecting you to be hurt in the story you <laughs> share. So <laughs> sorry for you to relive those memories. <laughs> Corey, that was a great answer to that final question. It sounds like you may need to write down all these crazy things y'all got going on in Canada down on some paper, just in case you start forgetting with all the memory loss there. But we loved having you on. This is a really awesome story. You have a very different, unique take, whether it be the different countries or the lifestyle. It's just a, it's a really cool story. And we always like to cover something that people haven't heard a ton of times. So I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun, guys. 
Man, Cody, I really loved that episode. It was awesome. Hit a lot of cool topics and maybe one that people weren't expecting there towards the end. Yeah, I definitely was not expecting that, but it was a fun twist. We just had an awesome conversation. Court was super well-spoken. She really knew her stuff about the Canadian system, even though she's quote-unquote still learning. She definitely took me for a loop. I learned so many things about everything Canada from FI to the healthcare system to the 18 months paid leave. It was just a super cool episode with a unique twist. Yeah, I thought one of the coolest parts of it or most interesting parts of it was how that her and her wife, before they even got married, were so in tune with their finances, even though they weren't talking about it. Like they were both saving so heavily, both on this path where they paid off very large sums of debt in two and a half years. And they weren't even communicating. They were just focused on having the money to be able to travel and being smart with their money. And it just sort of happened. And so then once they actually did start talking about it, you could see that it took just a whole nother gear and their path to fire just really rocketed. Yeah, this actually really reminded me of Lauren and Steven, who we had on a couple weeks back where they were doing all these things that they didn't quite have names for yet. Like Court was saying, her and her wife, they were house hacking, and they were doing travel hacking, and they were doing all these things. They were looking to get to the 4% rule, but they didn't have a name for them. They didn't get introduced to that Phi community until 2012, when she discovered Mr. Buddy Mustache and then stumbled down the rabbit hole from there. So it was just super cool to see someone who intuitively, well, obviously she has an advantage with the econ and math brain, kind of understanding the numbers, but someone who intuitively knew that, hey, this is possible. And if we save up this sum of money, we can live this lifestyle because we can withdraw this percentage and this is how the markets work and all that good stuff. Another interesting thing is, you know, she goes to Canada and she starts really researching all these different things that she has available to her. And the reason I think it's interesting is because, you know, it could maybe seem a little more obvious to people. They're like, well, she's going to a different country. Obviously, you're going to research things. But there's so many things that people don't research about as far as those nitty gritty details in their own life, even in the United States, whether it's you start a new job, your job gets taken over by a different company, you're in a different industry, you start going from full time to part time, you start working for yourself, whatever it is, like you have any kind of little life change. There's probably a lot of nitty gritty detail that you don't realize is there. There may be some pros and cons that you weren't aware of if you don't do your homework. That actually brings up a super interesting point and something I've been thinking about a lot lately, just like in the whole FI mindset and how I think about money is that I think people get so boxed into like a certain mindset and lifestyle that they don't even think about like the other opportunities that are out there. And so what I mean by that is like we were just talking about, Justin, I got back from South America a couple of weeks ago and I could literally probably save up two to 300 grand and go move to Peru and retire. Like that could be it. That could be the rest of my life. I could probably live on 10 to 15 grand a year. And like just knowing that those possibilities are out there, and I know Canada is obviously more like the US, it's going to be a bit more expensive, but they're living on 25 grand a year. They have all these awesome government programs. So when people are thinking about their situation, I challenge you to, you know, think outside of the box and don't be so focused on, you know, I have to go to this certain school or I have to live in this certain neighborhood or if I don't make this amount of money, it's the end of the world because the options are seriously endless once you just start to understand and look at the world around you. And now it's time for the call to action. And so this week's call to action is to do some of that digging, to go look at maybe some of your company specific programs. Like I know the company that just bought us out, they're going to start sponsoring charitable donations to over $3,000. That's something I'm definitely going to take advantage of. So just go out there and look through your company. Maybe it's your local state government, maybe it's even your county, or you may also have some things that aren't so good. And so if you're not happy with the job you're at, the city you're in, the state you're in, or you don't, or you feel like there's other benefits somewhere else, then start digging into that and see if it's worth making a jump. Love that call to action, Justin. You just got to start poking bricks in the brick wall until you see one that moves. 
And so if you want to get a more detailed summary, you want the written show notes of this episode, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash court. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.